Go with me to Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to look at a few different texts this morning, and then we'll camp in Hebrews chapter 1 over the next couple of weeks. Um, so we'll be in Isaiah 43 just briefly. We're going to be looking, taking a, a couple weeks, uh, and just looking at the glories of Christ uh, really throughout Scripture, but specifically in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, uh, which is this great, uh, this great prologue to this, uh, to the book of Hebrews showing who Jesus is, uh, revealing how glorious Christ is. We've been talking about the curse and the blessing, and last week we talked about beholding Christ, right? John the Baptist cried, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And when we behold Christ, when we look on Christ, we are transformed into his image, as 2 Corinthians 3 tells us, which we'll go there in a minute. Um, but we're really going to be looking at a couple of things, uh, one this week, one next week. Really, we see the glory of Christ in creation, and then next week we'll look at the glory of Christ in redemption uh, through Hebrews 1, uh, which we see Christ in all of that, right? But it's essential, I think, to understand creation uh, in order to truly understand redemption and to see the glory and beauty of Christ from beginning to end and how Christ is the one holding all things together. So let's pray, and then we'll read Isaiah 43 and talk about glory. Dear Father, God, thank you again for how wonderful and glorious you are. God, as we look at your glory at your beauty, at your majesty. God, we can't even begin to fathom what all of that means, what all of that is. But God, we beg now, like Moses, show us your glory. Show us how great you are. God, I pray that we would desire you and you alone. And during this Christmas season, God, we would take our eyes off of other lesser glories that are around, whether that's gifts or gatherings or families or money or whatever else takes our eyes, our focus off of you. God, fix our eyes on yourself, King Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, help us to see your glory. God, open up our the eyes of our hearts like you did to Job as we read your word and study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 43, uh, talking briefly about glory. Let's read verses 5 through 7. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This, this glory word is an interesting word, uh, and it's really hard to define, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is here in a minute. Um, the, glory, the word for glory used in Scripture most often means uh, weightiness. Or beauty. There's kind of a couple different meanings there, uh, which, and there's a lot of other meanings we could go into as well, but it, it's really hard to define. So, like this weightiness, this heaviness, or beauty, right? Weightiness of the beauty of Christ. And when we talk about the glory of God, the glory of Christ, we're talking about this, this thing that is heavy, that is weighty, that we can't really understand, right? 
I mean, even just the, the text that I prayed in Exodus 33, when, when Moses is begging God, please show me your glory. God says, I, I can't show you my face because you'll die, right? So God hides him in the cleft of the rock and passes by him. And, and Moses just catches a glimpse of the backside of God and, and his face uh, is, is glowing, right? To the point where he has to veil it. He has to put a veil over because people can't even look at his face. This glory is so, uh, shiny or weighty or heavy or beauty and this is the kind of glory that we're talking about when when we're saying behold the glory of God and we'll talk about that here in in a minute in 2 Corinthians 3 looking at the glory of God it's something that you and I can't really even fathom all right we have to get to this point where we can't truly define the glory of God the glory of God is all about his beauty and his greatness it's difficult to define or comprehend because we cannot fully define or comprehend God right like like there's no perfect explanation of who God is other than his word. But when you and I try to put it in our finite words and our finite minds, we can't truly really comprehend who God is. So that's why it's, it's hard to comprehend what his glory is, because his glory is everything about God. His beauty, his holiness, his greatness, it's difficult to define. Paul David Tripp says it like this. He says, to squeeze what is infinite into what is finite is vastly more impossible than trying to cram the entire body of a fully developed elephant into a thimble. Right? Talking about glory. When you and I try to define glory or talk about the glory of God, our words fall short. We stumble and we have a difficult time defining it, even like, like I am now. Because, because all, everything falls short of God. Everything falls short of His glory, His greatness, His weightiness, His beauty. And here at Christmas, especially at Christmas, all times, but especially at Christmas, our life is a glory battle. There are glories that are constantly vying for our attention, for our eyes, for our hearts. And the glory of this thing, of, of this world often captivates our hearts over Jesus. Right, so we think about Christmas. When I think about Christmas, I think of uh, family gatherings and and getting together and opening gifts and and watching uh, football on the weekends because that's what my family usually did. And we used to go out and play football because we grew up in New Mexico where it's 60 degrees uh, on on Christmas Day, so you can go and do those types of things uh, and and gather together and and hang out. And of course, being uh, out of school if you're in school, right, or getting some time off of work. And those are the glories that vie for our which none of those things in and of themselves are wrong, right? Those are, those are good things. Those are things God created for us to use, gifts for us to use. But when those things captivate our hearts, when we put glory or weightiness or see beauty of those things over Christ, that's where it becomes a sin. That's where it's a heart issue. Right? Our heart, our flesh is longing for other glories. And most often, that glory is about ourself. Why do we want better gifts? Because we want to be better. And we define ourselves by our gifts. Why do we want a better job or a job promotion? Because we may want more money to use those things on ourselves. Because we want to glorify ourselves. Or we may want a job promotion to feel better about ourselves because we find identity in that. Or we may want whatever. Right? And if we're honest with ourselves, I'm not saying those things are always that way. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we look at our hearts, if we examine ourselves, we will so often find that we want to glorify ourselves. Where we see glory is in the mirror. Is when we talk about ourselves, in thinking about ourselves, in focusing on ourselves. And that's why Christ came. 
Oh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night. Like, like there is a bad news to the Christmas story. Right? If, if we were good, if we could save ourselves, if we were totally focused on the glory of Christ, Jesus would not have had to come to earth. Right? Like, Jesus coming to earth is recognizing, and we have to recognize this, that, that you and I are broken and helpless and in need of a Savior and not focused on the glory of Jesus like we should be. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number one. I know that's so interesting to you guys, but the, the first question on that is, what is the chief end of man? It just begins. This catechism begins with, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? I even like John Piper's version better where he says, we glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Right? We enjoy Christ. We find joy and purpose and fulfillment in Christ and in Christ alone. And Isaiah 43 is telling us, you and I were designed for Him. Right? Look at verse 7 again. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And so many problem, people have a problem with this. This is, this is what is so off-putting to the world. A world that is looking in a proverbial mirror on our own glory. This is why Oprah, this is the whole reason why Oprah left Christianity. She said she didn't want to serve a God who was focused on his own glory. This is the reason why uh, Brad Pitt left Christianity. He was reading through the Psalms and saw how God is jealous for us. And he didn't want to serve a God like that. What we miss out is that is actually the best thing for us. Because one, we have to figure out, like, God, or, or realize God is not an egomaniac who needs our glory. Right? God doesn't need us. I mean, look at Acts chapter 17. And God is pretty clear here that he does not need us at all. Acts 17, 24, and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Right? Like, we have to realize this isn't God's house, right? We often refer to it as that this is just a building. Right? God is not confined to these walls, right? He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, right? God does not need you and I. That's a, that's a humbling realization to come to. But yet he loves us. He desires us. He sent his son to the earth to die for us. Right? Not because he needs us. Not because he's an egomaniac. But because he knows that's what's best for us. His glory is what you and I were designed for. Isaiah 43 is clear about that. You and I were designed for glory. Just like birds were designed for flying and fish were designed for swimming. You and I were designed to glorify God. To give weightiness to God. To show off the beauty of God. Even though he could do that by himself, right? He says he could lift up these rocks to glorify himself. Right? He used all kinds of things in the Old Testament. We'll see in Hebrews 1, uh, verse 1 tells us about that. Right? Like, like God used all kinds of things to glorify himself. He doesn't need you and I. 
I just just uh, heard a story about a Muslim a few weeks ago who uh, had never even heard of Jesus, and he's in these dreams hearing this voice uh, behind a door. There's a door, and he's seeing this shining light, and he's hearing this voice, and it's in his own language. And in his sleep, he's writing out something on, on a piece of paper, these words that this voice is telling him. This happens night after night after night after night. Well, then he ends up meeting this missionary, and this missionary is talking to him, and this missionary says, well, can you translate that for me in, into my language? And he begins to translate it, and he says, that's the Gospel of John. He had written out the entire Gospel of John in his sleep as he was hearing a voice. Right? Christ speaking to him in his native language, and he became a Christian through that. Like God does not need you and I. I heard another awesome story, uh, which this isn't necessarily a recommended way to do evangelism, but uh, in a in another country, a missionary uh, was was walking through and he had a Bible. Well, a, a, a dope dealer came up to him and said, hey, um, uh, are you going to use that Bible? Can I buy that off of you? He's like, Sure, why? He's like, well, those, that paper, this kind of paper, is good for smoking. So he says, I, w- I want to use that. And the missionary says, you know what? I'll do this. I won't sell it to you. I'll give it to you for free. But you have to make a deal with me. Before you smoke a page, you have to read it. And so this missionary, as the story goes, smoked his way through Matthew, smoked his way through Mark, smoked his way through Luke. And as he came to John, right, this is not people. Again, this is God's word. He surrendered his life to Christ, came to know Christ just through reading, not smoking, but reading God's word, right? And now that guy is a missionary, right? Like, like that's amazing. Those are stories that show God does not need you and I. He can glorify himself, but he chooses to use you and I because he knows his glory is what is best for us. And when we are focused on ourselves, we are, we are not finding true fulfillment. We won't find true fulfillment in anything. We are not doing what is best for us or for others. John Piper says it like this. He says, when you say, look at me, rather than look at Jesus, you distract others from what will save them, satisfy them, and make them most happy. What's going to save people? The glory of Jesus. What's going to satisfy people? The glory of Jesus. What's going to bring the most happiness and joy? The glory of Jesus. Not anything else in this world. Don't find fulfillment in those things. Find fulfillment in what you were designed for, namely the glory of God alone. I mean, think about marriage. What if marriage worked this way? This is how so often we treat Christianity. What if uh, uh, when Madi and I got married, I decided, I said, hey, I bought a little mirror, and I said, I'm just going to tape this to your face. Right? So I can look at myself when you look at me. Right? What if I, what if I just taped and I only ever talked about myself? Would that be a healthy marriage? Not at all. That'd be about me. And that's what we do. We try to hijack the glory of God, and we say, okay, what does this Bible, what does this Bible say about me? How am I the hero of this? Right? So this is what we do. We take the story of David and Goliath, and we say, well, I'm David, and I have to be better and defeat my Goliaths. Right? We take any story in Scripture, and we make ourselves the hero. We, we come to a, a church gathering and we say, how can I be most comfortable and most served? We make it about us. I love Francis Chan's response when a church member came up to him, uh, when he was pastoring, came up to him and said, uh, well, I didn't like worship today. And Francis Chan said, well, it's a good thing we're not worshiping you. So, well, like, that's, that, that's, this isn't about us. This isn't about you and I. 
This is about the glory of Christ as we gather together. When we go out, why can we enter into the suffering of others? Because it's not about us. It's not about our comfort or our glory. We say, I can enter into the suffering of others. I can get into the messiness of the lives of others because it's not about me or my comfort. It's about glorifying God. Why can people go to third world countries where they they are killed for the sake of the gospel? Because it's not about us or comfort or safety. It's about the glory of Christ and Christ alone. So we go and we continue to proclaim. And this is why we talk, constantly talk about the gospel of Christ crucified. Not a bunch of self-help tips. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll just be here briefly and then we'll go over to Hebrews 1. This is why when we come here, because I've heard these things. Well, how, how can these messages be more applicable to, to my life, right? Well, so we love those types of things. We love to listen to guys who give us uh, five steps to a better life or, or whatever, right? Because, again, we make it about us. But this is why here, as long as the current leadership is here at FBC Lovington, we will continue to talk about the glory and the glory of Christ alone because we only talk about him crucified because only a constant gaze on his glory will change us. Do you want to have a better marriage or be a better dad or a better uh, mom or a better coworker? Look at the glory of Christ, not some self-help gospel. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is pretty clear about this. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face. So Paul ta- begins to talk about how Moses had to veil his face. And now with unveiled face, right, we Behold the glory of the Lord. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How are you changed? How are you sanctified? How do you become more like Christ? You look at Christ. Look at Him. Gaze on Him. Right? Don't, don't, this is what, what we should be saying when we listen to sermons or podcasts or read books or gather and talk with other believers or go to Bible studies or gather as a church. We, we should be saying, don't give me seven steps to a better marriage or 3,000 steps to a happier life. Give me Jesus. Because Christ and Christ alone is what will change you. A self-help gospel is more condemnation. Because what you're saying in, okay, how can I have a better marriage? Okay, i got to follow these seven steps, right? And when you read Scripture that way as law, you're putting more condemnation on yourself. That will never change a heart. That will never do that. Christ and Christ alone, beholding His glory, will do that. Even, even in my parenting, I think of, of Jeremiah. My constantly telling him over and over and over again and, and correcting him isn't going to change his heart It can help teach him obedience, and those are good things. We should do those things. But the only thing that will change his heart is Jesus. So I have to point him to Jesus. The only thing that will change my wife is Jesus. The only thing that will change me is Jesus. The only thing that will change you is Jesus. Look at his face. Behold the glory of the Lord. And be changed, be transformed. I love that word transformed. Notice it's not conformed. If it was conformed, that's something you do. Transformed is something God does. He transforms you. He makes you like himself as you look at his glory. And we see this in everyday life, right? So, I mean, going back to the, uh, the example of marriage, the more I hang out with my wife, the more I begin to like cumbia music and Hallmark movies, right? 
Because that's just natural. Those things just happen, right? I used to hate Hallmark movies or any kind of chick flick when we first got married. And now I'm on the couch watching those things all the time, right? Because the more Madi and I spend time together, the more we become like each other. And that's just natural, right? That's not some supernatural thing. We have the, the Holy Spirit living inside of us supernaturally changing us. How much greater is that change than just liking Hallmark movies? That's what John is saying in 1 John. You're either walking in darkness or you're walking in the light. Because if you're walking in darkness, you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, transforming you. It's not about you, but you're not daily beholding the glory of the Lord. Look to Christ. You will become more like Him if you're in Him. Go with me now to Hebrews chapter 1. This is where we'll spend the rest of today and next week as well. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3a this week, and we'll look at 3b and 4 next week. Let me read that. 1, 1 through 3a. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. First thing we see here is that God speaks. Right? Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I hope you realize like how much grace that is, the fact that, that God just speaks to us. Because God's under no obligation to speak to us, right? If God never gave us the Bible, if God never gave us his word, he would still be holy and righteous and good, right? God's, God's not held captive by that. God's holiness doesn't depend on him speaking to us. Because of his, his, his love and his grace and his mercy, he does speak to us. Because you and I wouldn't know how to be saved. We wouldn't know the truth of the gospel. We didn't look at his word. But he speaks to us. He's given us grace and then we see that phrase, at many times and in many ways. What's this talking about? Well, God spoke, just think of the Old Testament. God spoke in many different ways. God spoke through creation, right? We see, we see creation pouring out speech day after day, Psalm 19 tells us, right? Creation is speaking. God speaks through speeches, right? People speaking for, for him, prophets. He speaks through dramatic action, right? Think of uh, all the, the battles and, and the conquering and the things that happened in the Old Testament through this dramatic action. Or think of Moses, right? As, as Moses goes and all these great miracles happen, right? These, these plagues happen and these great crazy things happen, right? Dreams, visions, written words, a burning bush, and even a talking donkey, right? Which is pretty humbling when your job is to proclaim God's word that I could be replaced by a talking donkey easily. Uh, that, that's pretty, that's a humbling thing, right? Uh, or a bush on fire, right? So, so let us never, even in our sharing the gospel, become too arrogant in that, that, that we somehow have the message down because you and I can easily be replaced by a donkey who speaks or a bush on fire or other things, right, that God chooses to use. God uses these things. So we see that God speaks in many times, at many times and in many ways. 
And then we see that all the prophets were pointing us to Jesus, right? So long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? Jesus went on, on the road to Emmaus and Luke chapter 24 goes through Moses and all the prophets, it tells us, and shows how it points to himself. What did Moses write? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? So, so from the beginning of the Old Testament throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus walked through with his disciples and showed them, this is talking about me. This is talking about me. This is talking about me. All these prophets were pointing us to Christ. And then verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is just a side note. I don't even have this in my notes. But but last days, this should be comforting to us. We hear all the time, like, well, we're living in the last days. We're in such an evil time, which is true. But they were also living in the last days here when this was written almost 2,000 years ago, right? Like, don't think the world has somehow become evolved into some greater evil, right? Like, sin's always been around. Sin, sin has always been around since Adam and Eve broke God's first commandment, right? Sin is rampant, but Jesus is destroying it. Right? Creation is groaning for the day when Jesus comes back and makes all things right. Jesus is making all things right. Jesus has on the cross destroyed. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and principalities of the world, Colossians 2 tells us. And one day he will ultimately defeat death as he comes back and creates a new heaven and a new earth and brings us to be a part of it. That's good news. So, so I think it's comforting to see those were even the last days, right? I mean, I, if we read, read the New Testament, I think the, even the apostles were fully convinced that Jesus was coming back in their time, right? And so, Jesus will come back soon. Be patient. His plan is perfect, not ours. So, these last days, now he connects it with Christ speaking. He has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, right? Jesus speaks. Jesus is the last word. He has the last word, and he is the last word, right? John 1 tells us he is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? Talking about Jesus and Jesus alone. Which, by the way, if you're walking with someone through John, make sure to explain that. I hear all the time, like, but yeah, new believers, go through the book of John. That first few verses are very confusing. Make sure to kind of help them along with that, right? Talking about Jesus being the word. So the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the New Testament, and more specifically in Jesus, right? So, so when we see things like this, we should, we should always think and remember the Bible is one long story. Right? The Bible's not a series of disconnected stories. The Bible's not 66 separate books that are telling a, def- a different message. It's all pointing us to Christ, right? I mean, that's why we can look at and say, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Well, the same way they were they are in the New Testament. The difference is we're looking back at the cross. They were looking forward to the cross, right? Hebrews 11 tells us that. It's by faith in Christ and in Christ alone, in his work that he has done. And all of this is pointing us to Christ. In the Old Testament, we see promise. In the New Testament, we see fulfillment. And everything, all things find their yes in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, right? It's all these promises are yes in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Matthew Henry says in his commentary, Now we must expect no new revelation, but only more of the Spirit of Christ to help us better understand what is already revealed. It is the final, the finishing revelation. 
It is a revelation which God has made by His Son, the most excellent messenger that was ever sent into the world. This is why we don't look for messages in the sky, right? And we hear all the time, God's just not speaking to me. Right here, He has spoken to you. It's the final word. Christ is it. He's all you need. You don't need a new revelation. You need Jesus. You know what new revelations get you? Mormonism, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, and all kinds of false gospels in between. Which will never stand, by the way. Christ and Christ alone, His Word stands. His Word lasts forever. We have everything we need in Christ. We have everything we need in His Word and in His Spirit leading us. Trust that He is the final Word. We also see that Christ's redemptive work, as, since we're here at Christmas time, didn't begin in a stable in Bethlehem, but long ago in the Old Testament narratives. Right? Like, like you guys realize that Jesus' redemptive work, Jesus' work on the cross didn't just begin 2,000 years ago in a stable. It began before creation. Right? It, it's so comforting to read Revelation and see that our names have been in the book of life since before the foundation of the world. We have been chosen since before the foundation of the world. That's comforting because nothing can take that away from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not sword or nakedness or famine or anything else. Jesus and Jesus alone holds on to us. What a comforting, beautiful message at Christmas time. So yes, we celebrate when Jesus did come. We celebrate as he, that he came as a baby to go and die Right, which is really the crux of the gospel. But that work began long ago. Not just 2,000 years ago. We also see that Jesus is the heir of all things. Right, As we continue on, it says, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he, also, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, we can't think of like modern-day terms where uh, heirs are inheriting something right, that they didn't have before. Right, The, the connotation here is that Heir means everything is his. Right? Like, you realize that Jesus didn't just suddenly, after he rose from the dead, uh, suddenly, hey, thanks, Dad, now everything's mine. Or like, like, everything has always been Christ's. I mean, the very next line tells us that. We'll talk about that. Through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the heir of the world because he created the world. He's the heir of all things. So this idea stresses not that Jesus inherited something that wasn't his. Glory has always been his since before foundation of the world but rather it stresses the idea that all things are his rightful possession. Like everything is Jesus's. I love the way Abraham Kuyper says this. He says, There is not one square inch in all the universe over which Jesus Christ does not say, Mine. Right? Like there's nothing which is not filled with Christ. Right? Like, so that's why we don't say things like when we go to a third world country while well, we're, we're bringing Christ to them. Like Christ has already been there. Christ is everywhere. Everything is His. The world and everything in it. The universe and everything in it. He is the heir of some things. No, the heir of all things. The heir of everything that has ever existed. And Romans 8 gives us the beautiful truth that if we are sons and daughters of God, we are also co-heirs with Christ. Christ is the heir of all things. And Romans 8 tells us if you and I are sons and daughters, then we are also, we will also reign with him as heirs. 
People who inherit things, who will rule. You and I will rule and reign if we're in Christ as, as kings and queens with Jesus forever and ever and ever. It's much more exciting than anything this world has to offer. The fact that you and I will be and rule with Jesus. And, and we'll see his glory face to face. And we will receive a, a peculiar glory, the weight of glory. Right? That, that no amount of suffering in this world is, is worthy of. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that. Right? Like this light momentary affliction is producing in us a weight of glory. Right? So we look forward to that day. And not only is Jesus the heir of all things, but he's also the creator of all things, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Is Jesus creator? Yes, he created all things. And creation is pointing us back to the glory of Christ, which is one of the ways he speaks to us. I mean, Psalm 19, I quoted it earlier, but let me just read the first four verses to you of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I don't know if you noticed a couple nights ago, it was very clear, uh, and, and we were coming back from Lubbock, this was Friday night, uh, this is a clear sky, and Jeremiah, being a three-year-old boy, he just downed a Sprite, had to use the restroom, we're in the middle of nowhere, he's like, alright, come out. And as he's standing there, I'm just looking up and seeing stars, just not noticing seeing that many stars in a while. And it was beautiful, just like it fills me with awe and wonder and to the point where you can't even, you don't even know how to describe it, right? Which is glory, like we talked about. The glory of Christ, we can't even describe it. And that's just a small snapshot of the glory of Jesus. All of creation, the, the heavens, the skies are proclaiming his handiwork. Day to day, verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge, right? The day is, is speaking to us. Right, The sun, the, the sky, the clouds, it's speaking to us about God, glorifying God. And night is pouring out knowledge, revealing, Right, as we see the stars, it's revealing knowledge. I just heard this stat the other day, but the, the star uh, Betelgeuse, or Betelgeist, however you want to say it, uh, which is this massive star. Uh, in fact, it's bigger than the Earth's rotation, uh, which is crazy. Right, uh, The light from Betelgeist, or Betelgeuse, takes 540 years to get to us. That's how far away it is. So, so the light that we're seeing from that star, when we look at that star, was light that started shining back when knights were fighting each other, right? When the crusaders were, were trying to conquer the Middle East. That's crazy to think about. And that's something that's bigger than ourselves. That's not something that happened by chance. It's something who someone created and is holding together. And that's Jesus. Jesus alone. It's essential that we focus on him as we look at creation. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their, wor- their words to the end of the world. Christ created all things. And then verse 3a, and this is where we'll end today. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This word radiance, the Greek there is apogasma, which... It's talking about two things. It's talking about inherent splendor and emitted splendor. So there's inherent splendor in who Jesus is, right? The, being the radiance of the glory of God, because Christ is holy and good and exactly like God. He is God himself, right? 
And there's also an emitted splendor, a splendor that comes off of him, this glory, this radiance. There's a shining glory, and we see this. Think of the transfiguration, right? When Moses and Elijah came and, and stood, and they couldn't even, and then Christ was glorified, and the disciples couldn't even look, and then everything else was stripped away except Jesus. And Jesus is standing there in his full glory, and the disciples are looking at him. Think about the book of Revelation as we read that, when Jesus comes back riding on a horse with a name on his thigh, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the sword coming out of his mouth, conquering glory, this emitted splendor that we see that's only in Christ, in Christ alone. We see that Jesus is God himself, so he's the radiance of the glory of God, the shining and the exact imprint of his nature, exactly alike. So when the disciples looked at, walked, and talked with Jesus, they were looking at, walking, and talking with God. God himself, God incarnate, God in the flesh. And see, and see this reversal of the curse. This is what Jesus begins to do. I think this is so beautiful that, that Jesus, even in that glory, takes away shame. Think of like Adam and Eve. This is what, this is what Christ is doing. This is where we see all of scripture tying together. Christ is reversing the curse as we're talking about the curse and the blessing. Adam and Eve began seeing the full glory of God without shame, right? They walked with God. And then what did sin do? It separated them. It brought them shame. They hid from God. And they were no longer allowed to see the full glory of God. They had shame when they rebelled. But now look at the disciples. The disciples, when they began walking with God, right? They're walking with the same God Adam and Eve walked with, right? <clears throat> they begin with shame and their rebellion. I mean, think of the time after time after time that the disciples were just shamed. They saw their sin, and, and it became more evident the more they walked with Christ. But Christ took away that shame. So we begin shameless, shame comes. And then we see the New Testament. Shame is here, now Christ takes that shame away. And Peter and John and James and these others are going to the ends of the world, being beheaded and sawed in half and hung upside down on a cross and boiled alive and all kinds of things because shame has been taken away by Christ. There's no more shame. There's no more guilt. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone. Even though we're looking at the glory of God when we look at Jesus, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact, exact imprint of his nature. An earthly son is a lot like his father, but only Jesus is the exact imprint of his father as the second person of the Trinity, something you and I can't understand, which, which by the way, don't, don't try to use analogies. Right? We hear that all the time, that the Trinity is like water or like an apple and three slices or an egg or whatever. Those are just dumb analogies, and, and Christ is bigger than an egg or an apple or than anything else. We just trust it. We can't understand it. Just trust it. Christ and God and the Holy Spirit are one. We can't understand that. I mean, think of verse 2, like we just sang of, Hark the herald angels sing. Look at these words. Christ, by highest heaven adored, right? Christ, before he came to earth, was adored by all of heaven. Christ, the everlasting Lord, he's always been, always will be, the Alpha and the Omega. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, right? He veiled himself in flesh, and we see the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit within him. Hail the incarnate deity. Then he removes that flesh and reveals, I am Jesus. And so when John is saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, when we're beholding him, we're beholding the Godhead incarnate, 
Jesus himself, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, Emmanuel, was pleased to come and dwell with us. Not that he needed us, but it pleased him. He wanted to. It was for his joy, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross to save you and I. I don't understand that because I see our wretchedness and our filth. I see my wretchedness and my filth. And Christ loves me. He came in the flesh to save me. And so shame is removed, even though I'm looking at the full glory of God in Christ. And you and I, as 2 Corinthians 3 tells us, are being transformed into that image. If we're in Christ and we're daily beholding the glory of Christ, we're being transformed into him and him alone. And he upholds, this is where we'll stop today, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is holding everything together. If Jesus ever ceased to will the universe in existence, it would cease to exist altogether, right? You guys realize that. Like, Jesus is constantly thinking about the universe, right? He's holding it together. If he ever just ceased to, if he ever wanted to, he could wipe us all out. I remember thinking about this a couple weeks ago, elk hunting in the mountains. I was mostly thinking of this because I am way out of shape and I was dying and I had to think about something else other than I need water and I can't breathe. So I remember just like looking down and looking at rocks and and uh, bushes on top of this mountain and thinking like no one is thinking right now about this rock. This is a weird thought. These are the weird thoughts that come into my head. Like no one's thinking other than me right now. No one's thinking about this rock or no one's thinking about this bush except Jesus. Like Jesus, no human was ever going to care about this rock or this bush. And Jesus created all of that. Jesus is holding all of that together by the word of his power. Christ is is holding the things together that you and I will never see, we'll never know about. We'll never know when a sparrow dies in the forest. But Jesus does. Jesus is holding it together and Jesus is in control of it. Christ and Christ alone. That's the glory, the beauty, the majesty of that. Which, by the way, means that you and I can't just pollute the, the earth into oblivion. Right? We see that scare tactic throughout uh, the world. It's not, it's not saying you should go and pollute. Right? We should be good stewards. But, but the world's not going to end because of some humans who have mistreated it. The world will end precisely when Christ means it to. When he comes back and brings us to be with him and creates a new heaven and a new earth. And so, as we see, and then we'll see next week as we'll talk about redemption, the author of Hebrews, by the way, verses 1 through 4 is all, in the Greek, is all one sentence. One like long run-on sentence. So he's connecting creation with redemption. And this is why you have to, we have to have a right view of creation, of the God, the glory of the God who is holding creation together. This is why evolution doesn't work for believers, right? We, it's a pretty popular thing. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe that the world just happened by chance. A God who does not create is a God who cannot save. If Jesus doesn't have the power to create, if he hasn't created all things, he doesn't have the power to save. Because he has the power to create, because he created all of everything, because he's holding everything together with his power, that's a God who can save. Christ and Christ alone can save. And so in conclusion, we look at Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read this quickly, and we will be done. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. 
This is a familiar passage, especially at Christmas time. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The angels came, were shining in the glory of God. The angels proclaimed the glory of God. The shepherds left, glorifying God. When you and I encounter the true Christ, when we see the beauty of Christ, we won't be able to do anything else but glorify him. And our words still fall so short. Glory is what he is, and glory is what he deserved. And that little baby was just the beginning of the glory of God being revealed to man in Christ. Just the beginning. This Christmas, what are you gazing at? What are you beholding? What are you daily fixing your eyes on? The glory of Jesus? The glory of food, or friends, or family, or gifts, or New Year's resolutions, or job promotions, or whatever else. What captivates your heart? What do you constantly think about and talk about and daydream about? Is it the glory of Christ or is it other things? Because you and I have little idol factories living in us, so often other things. We so often take our eyes off the beauty, the glory of Jesus, and look at other things. Christian, behold Jesus. Look at Christ. Look at creation around us. Look at his word and see that it's all pointing us to the glory, to the weightiness, to the beauty of Jesus and Jesus alone. This Christmas, focus on him and proclaim that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that you are glorious and wonderful and beautiful and majestic, and still our words fall so short. But Jesus, thank you that you love us. You came, and as like we'll talk about more next week, you've redeemed us, you've purchased us, made us your own. God, I don't understand why. I don't understand that kind of love. Jesus, I trust it. God, show us your glory. Show me your glory. Help us to glory in you and you alone this Christmas. Help us to reclaim your glory and your glory alone this Christmas. God, help us not to be conformed to the image of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. Transformed as we look at your glory. Thank you for all that you are, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.